Welcome this morning to Bethany. Let's take a moment. We'll pray as we begin this new series together. We're excited to see what God has to say to us, not only as individuals, but certainly as a community, as we look at the book of Acts and think about what God is saying to us collectively about being people of hope in our city and beyond our city into our world. So please join me in prayer as we commit this time to Christ. Father, we are so profoundly grateful for the privilege of being invited into a story of hope that you're writing in a world because we are mindful more than ever, perhaps, that our world is, is a void right now, lacking hope, lacking meaning, lacking joy. So I pray, Father, that the profound gift of Easter would not be for any of us in the room something that extends only to the limits of our own personal well-being, but that your Holy Spirit would move us out, crossing boundaries in order to embody that hope that our world so desperately needs. May you be seen in us, Jesus, and equip us toward that end even this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the hardest days of my life was the day I moved to Seattle from the mountains in December of 1995. Uh, I, God had tricked me into becoming the pastor of Bethany Community Church. I wasn't particularly interested in that as a calling, but it happened. And, and I was, by the end, completely convinced that it was God's will and had said yes. But though I'd said yes and though I knew it was the right thing to do, I didn't want to leave the ministry that I was leading in the mountains. And so it was a very, very difficult day. I remember we had a little grand piano and I was playing the piano in the living room the last day up in the mountains, uh, realizing all that God had done in that setting. And I can't imagine that uh, God would do anything better in any other setting. And so I didn't want to leave. It was one of the hardest days of my life. One of the best days of my life also was the day I moved to the city from the mountains to Bethany Community Church. Because though I could never have anticipated what God would do, God knows what God wants to do. And so, is it possible that movement can be both supremely challenging and then retrospectively the best thing we ever did? Yes. This is the book of Acts in many, many ways. And so we've entitled the series, Time to Move. And I'll just note, it seems obvious, but it's important to note, any kind of movement, whether you're moving across the country or you're getting up off the sofa to go next door and meet your neighbor, any kind of movement at all implies action. And so the book of Acts is appropriately named, these are what? Acts. These are what the disciples actually did in light of the reality of the resurrection. People moved. They moved out of their comfort zones. They crossed barriers. And we'll just be honest at the beginning. I hope you'll be honest with me in acknowledging uh, that moving is hard for most of us in the room. Uh, not just moving to a new city. Any kind of movement, ideological movement, relational movement, uh, uh, moving uh, our priorities around. Movement's hard, and here's why. Many of us in the room, maybe most of us in the room, don't like change because as we're moving into change, we're moving into the uncertain. And we, most of us in the room, prefer control to uncertainty, right? So if the book of Acts is about anything, it's about a group of people who are willingly relinquishing control of their lives to an outside agency, 
So I'm just going to say that again because it's so important. This is a book about people willingly relinquishing control of their lives to an outside agency. The outside agency being, of course, the Holy Spirit. And so they had a grip on their lives, uh, their vocation, their plans, the supposed impact that they intended to create in their world, if any. And now God has pried their hands open and said, unless your hands are empty, you can't be filled, but you will be filled because your hands will be empty. And when your hands are empty and you are filled, you will move. You'll move. So Acts is written by Luke, who, by the way, he wrote a second book of the Bible, Luke, okay, just so you know. And, and it's, so it's a, basically, it's a continuation of that gospel. And Luke, he, Luke speaks extensively in his gospel uh, about the kingdom of God, and it's a subject that's uh, very tricky and confounding for the disciples because the word kingdom has certain connotations, right? If, you're, if you have a kingdom, you have a king, you have administrators, you have political power, uh, and you have the power to impose those values, often militarily, power to crush rebellion uh, against the kingdom. There's taxes, there's pomp, there's glory, uh, there's, there's prestige, there's position. And so Jesus has been talking about the kingdom, but then there was this crazy crucifixion, and Jesus... Is, you know, he's on a cross and there's a sign, this is the king of the Jews, and the disciples are like this, if this is the kingdom, is this really what we want? What kind of kingdom is this? And then he rose from the dead, right? And, and he's been with them 40 days, and we know from Acts 1 that during the 40 days he's been with them, he's continued to teach them about the kingdom. So when the disciples said yes to following Jesus, they said yes in the context, uh, in the context of this word kingdom, over and over again. After all, the phrase kingdom of God occurs in uh, Luke chapter 4, and then again, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, those chapters consecutively. So it is the consistent theme in the writings of Luke and amongst the disciples. And in a sense, the kingdom is the carrot of discipleship, right? You want to follow me? Hey, I'm building a kingdom, so come with me. It's going to be awesome, right? And this was hinted at in uh, Psalm 72, and of course, most of the disciples knew their Bibles pretty well for various reasons, but predominantly because most of them were Jewish, and so, uh, you know, they, they, they read the Old Testament. They went to Awana. They understood this stuff. So Psalm 72 it reads this way, verses 1 through 4. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son, and may he, the king, judge your people with righteousness and the afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people. Let the hills uh, break forth in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Now, that's awesome, right? And if you're Jewish and you're thinking about this and you're reading this in the first century, the, uh, the oppressor, we all know who the oppressor is, it's Rome. And so when, when, if Jesus is going to be kingdom, if Jesus is going to have a king, if, if Jesus is going to be a king and bring a kingdom, then the challenge is this, Acts 1.6, they expect that God will fulfill Psalm 72 literally for the nation of Israel. In other words, uh, Jesus, is it at this time that you're going to crush the oppressor, i.e. Rome? Is it, that, is it at this time uh, that the afflicted will realize justice? In other words, Jesus, look, there's, there's, there's slaves, women are marginalized, 
um, uh, the, 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 the poor, those who don't own land, uh, the immigrants, the refugees, all of these people out on the margins, they're not really enjoying the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome is for this like powerful minority. The middle class seems to be disappearing. They're, and in the midst of all this, we're asking the question, Jesus, is now the time when all that changes? Like, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And what they mean by that is this word kingdom, in these temporal terms, overthrowing Rome and bringing about an economic transformation with us at the helm, right? And so the tricky part is restore in their minds. The question they ask, restore, imply, always the word restore implies what? Moving forward or back. When you restore something, you're making it the way it was. So that's like it's a backward look. Jesus, we have, like when will the good old days happen again? When you know, we're sitting on top of the world. When's that going to happen? Is now the time? He's about to leave, so they want to know. And he, watch this. It's very important for all of us because looking back blinds us to what God wants to do in the future. It happens, it happens in all of our lives. And so in this case, looking back blinds Israel and the disciples to what Christ is doing. But what Christ is doing is a new thing. It's entirely new. It's not national anymore. That's the past. It's global. It's not restorative, it's transformative. It's not going to be through the power of the sword, but it will be through the power of the cross. Not fear and hate and building walls, but love and service and washing one another's feet and laying our lives down. It's an entirely new thing that God is doing, uh, and therefore we need to look not back, but forward, not only then, but now. Look, when I hear the church saying, oh, you know, I long for the good old days. I hear this sometimes, and what the code for that is 1950. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Oh, the good old days, you know, when women weren't working in the workforce, and, you know, they were at home, and they knew their place, and marriages were marriages, and all was cool in the world. Was all really that cool in the world in 1950? Not so much if you're African-American. Not, not, not so much if your sexual identity is not in the, in the mainstream. Not so much if you're the victim of domestic violence and have no voice whatsoever. You want to go back to 19? You want to go back? God doesn't want to go back. Certainly not to a romanticized view of the past. God is creating an entirely new thing. And by the way, the new thing is not 2015 America. <laughs> It's the kingdom of God. So it's this new thing that God is interested in doing. Therefore, we need to look ahead, right? So if we look at the text, very interesting. Jesus does this all the time. The disciples ask Jesus questions and he doesn't answer them. How annoying is that, right? So they say in, uh, in verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring, remember, looking back, restoration, you're restoring the kingdom to Israel. And then uh, this is basically what he says. Uh, I don't even know. Only God the Father knows, and God's not telling, right? So um, they ask the question, but rather than answering the question, what Jesus actually does is he, he reframes the conversation entirely. Not for you to know, uh, because you don't have authority, right? 
So Jesus, when Jesus answers the question, he begins with a question of authority. Again, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And then he says, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by, by his own authority. But God has authority in this setting. God has authority regarding the kingdom, regarding restoration, regarding transformation, regarding the, 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 the full reign of Christ. It's God's authority. It's not your. You, we will never bring about the kingdom. In other words, do you understand this? We will never bring it about, not by electing the right person, not by lobbying, not by political action committees, not, not by aligning with one political party. That will never bring about the kingdom of God ever. That is a, that is a shallow, narrow view of the gospel. So let it go. Because we don't have authority to bring about the kingdom of God any more than any of us in the room have authority to save anyone. We don't save anyone. Jesus saves. Jesus builds. Jesus moves. Jesus works. Jesus builds his kingdom by the Father's authority in the time frame and manner and methodology and tactic that is unique to Jesus. Our job is to align with Jesus. That's the only thing. It's so uh, reminiscent, actually, of, you may or may not know the story, but the book of Joshua, where Joshua is, uh, he's, he's going into the promised land, and he encounters this, this angel figure, and, you know, so, you know, Joshua pulls out his sword, you know, are you for us or against us? And the angel, who's actually the Lord, and I'm paraphrasing, but the angel goes, it's the wrong question, man. Are you for or against me? <laughs> because I'm in control here. So you think you're going to go in and, and, and you know, conquer the land? You're not doing anything. I'm the one giving this land to you by my power, my authority, my initiative, my tactics. You follow me. Don't confuse your means with God's authority. They're not the same. So, Jesus says, look, the authority to bring about my full reign does not belong to you. You, you won't bring it about. But here's what will happen. And then he gives them three important promises. And that's what we look at this morning in the body of our time together. The promise of their potential, the promise of purpose, the promise of a plan. And this frames the whole book of Acts. So let's take a look at this together. Three promises, promise of potential, promise of purpose, Promise of a plan. So what, first of all, promise of potential. What, what does this mean? Watch this. This is what he says. He says, it's not for you to know the times or epochs by which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but here's what you can know. This is the promise given to you and I because we also are disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the potential. You'll be my witnesses, right? Both in uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And then um, uh, Samaria, and then the remotest parts of the earth. That's the plan. So uh, power, you'll see power, that's potential. You'll be my witnesses, right? That's, uh, in a sense, the purpose. And then and the plan is that this is not, you're not going to be this black hole drawing people in. You're going to go out, build bridges. So watch this. Promise of potential. All, it, we, all of us in the room are filled with potential. How? This is how. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This word power, it's a very interesting word. It's the word dunamis, and we get the word, we get the English word dynamite from this. It's this explosive power. And so Jesus is saying this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what Jesus does there that's so significant is he links 
power with the presence of the Holy Spirit. In other words, let's state this negatively. If you don't have the Holy Spirit functional in your life, you don't have what? Power. You don't have the power of God. And maybe you're like this. Well, I don't need power. I don't need the power. I don't need the power of God. I work at Amazon. We don't start the day with prayer meetings. Come on. We just, we just market things. We sell anything. That's what I do. Who needs power? I don't need power. I'm just at home with three kids. Oh, you need power. <laughs> you need power for patience. When we, pray, when we dedicate babies, this is what we say. Lord, would you, as we pray for these parents, may they know when to speak and when to shut up. I don't say it that way when I'm praying, but that's what we're praying, right? May, may they know when to correct and when to confess. How do you know? You need power. When you're at Amazon, how do you know when to speak truth to power? Well, only if you have power. How, how do you know how to be a blessing within that community? You, you need power. So Jesus said, up a little further in the text, verse 4, he gathers everybody together in Jerusalem, these disciples, and he says, don't go anywhere, but wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, why? Because if you go out and try and do the work of God in the power of your own fallen humanity, it'll be a disaster. How do I know this? Well, the disciples are told to wait in Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, because anytime we, we, and I use the word here in quotes, anytime we minister in the power of the flesh, it always ends in disaster. Does that make sense? In other words, all of us in the room, we want, I mean, I'm sure that we want our neighbors to you know, know Christ and we want marriages to be healed and wanna, you know, we want to fix everything. But like when we try and fix things, the power of the flesh, it ends consistently, it ends in disaster over and over again. And so uh, we need to learn here, we don't do saving. We don't, we don't, we don't do you know, transformation. Our job is to be filled with the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can express through us a life that is, in fact, the resurrection power of Jesus. So I'm not imitating Jesus. I'm not wearing a bracelet. What would, like, WWJD, what would Jesus do if he were here, implying his absence? He is here. He's right here. And, and, and I would wear a bracelet, if I wore one, that says, thank you that you are here, whatever those letters are. Right? Thank you. Because, because, look, that's the power that I want to be displayed. It's Christ himself. Not an imitation of Christ, but Christ. And so um, we see in Galatians chapter 5 that our lives are taking place daily in the context of a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And we don't have time to look at that text particularly this morning, but when Christianity has been carried out in the power of flesh just throughout church history, whenever it's been the power of the flesh rather than the power of the spirit, it's looked ugly. Inquisitions, colonialism. I mean, the bloodiest war in Europe's history is the war between the Protestants and the Catholics, the 30-year war, right? And so uh, anytime in God's name, we're trying to do God's work, but we're doing the power of the flesh, not only does it not work, it's destructive. I had a neighbor... Uh, when we were first married, um, who, was, who was married, she was married to a, a man and he wasn't a Christian and she was like this, I will save him, right? And everything she did was a disaster, right? She, she, um, 
You know, he, I went fishing with him all the time, and I just watched him drift away further and further from any interest at all in the gospel because of her kind of high-handed methodology. I'm going to save my husband, right? You know, Bible verses on the mirror, when he's shaving in the morning, you know, about all have sinned, and Bible verses on the plate, and come to church, you know, a tie of the pillow on Sunday morning, and, and we would fish, and he would say, I just, you know, she just is nagging me to death, and he, you know, ultimately he tried to kill himself at one point, and uh, then their marriage broke up, and everywhere I go, in my travels as well, I find that when people are so intent, I will change you. That's not the, that's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the power of the Holy Spirit. So, it appears that over and over again throughout the history of the church, we've sought to fulfill our calling to be people of transformation, to bless the world, but we sought to fulfill our calling often with an entirely wrong methodology, the methodologies of the flesh. You know, nagging, manipulation, or at a state level, the power of the sword rather than the power of the spirit. And it's tempting because uh, somehow we believe sometimes nagging works and at a you know, at a political level, the state can silence opposition. The state can amass wealth for its purposes. The sword uses violence to curb evil. This is, this is why I love that scene in, uh, uh, you know, The Lord of the Rings where, remember, if, how many have watched the movie? Forget about the book for a minute. You've seen the movie, right? If you've seen the movie, remember Frodo? And when he learns the power of the ring, what does he, you look most like Gandalf in the room right now. <laughs> he, he goes, Take it! Take the ring! Do you remember? How many remember the scene? You know what I'm talking about? And what does, what does Gandalf say? He says, oh no. He says, I would, if I took it, I'd want to use it for good, but it would be destructive. That's the power of the flesh. Right? Anytime, you know, in God's name, in the strength of my own fallen humanity, I'm going to change the world. Bam, bam, you know, warning. That's the flesh. And it's, in, the, in the end, it's going to be destructive. So, the Bible doesn't judge the state using the sword as inherently wrong. In fact, to the contrary, Romans 13 says, the state is granted the power of the sword to punish or prevent evil. But in, when we gather here, we don't gather as the state. We gather as this uh, transnational community in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you know, German nor American, we're all together, black nor white, under the banner of Christ. And our power is not the sword, our power is the Holy Spirit. And this is vital because it, we know from the book of John, when Jesus was, you know, closing out his teaching ministry with the disciples, this is what Jesus said. Look, uh, you don't ever bring conviction of sin to anyone through your great preaching or, you know, your words or your, you know, profound music. It's always the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. It's always the Holy Spirit that offers course adjustments, adjustments in our lives so that we continue to represent the heart of Christ with increasing accuracy. It's the Spirit that brings direction to our lives. It's the Spirit that infuses our lives with power, supernatural love, supernatural courage, supernatural fruit, supernatural generosity. It's not us. In fact, to the contrary, 1 Corinthians 1 says, you know, God has chosen, you know, rather plain-looking vessels to fill with the Holy Spirit so that 
when power bursts forth, all the glory clearly goes to God so that none of us would boast. We should never be talking about what we've done. The story always should be, look what God has done because we know we're self-aware enough to know that we don't have what it takes to change the world, but Christ lives in us. And then this becomes this grand adventure so that, for example, when Peter preaches his sermon that we'll see next week in Acts chapter 2, at the end of this, this, uh, this season of power in the early few days of the church, it says that people looked at the disciples and they marveled. Why? Because they were uneducated fishermen. Like, who preached? Like, how do they do that? Holy Spirit. How do they heal people? Like, Holy Spirit. How do they have that suit? Like, that courage. Like, we told Peter, if he kept preaching, we would put him in jail. He said, well, whatever. I'm going to keep doing God's will. Who has that kind of courage? Holy Spirit. So, that's why, that's why Jesus says to the disciples, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Because... To be blunt, if you try and do my work in your power, you'll do more harm than good. I applied for a job years ago. With them. You know, when you're in ministry, you get discouraged and you want out. I don't know if you know that. And so when I was, there was, a, there was this short season, I called this guy in Idaho and I said, hey, I want to come work for you and build log cabins. I mean, I studied architecture, so I wanted to build log cabins. And he says, tell me about your experience. Oh, you know, I worked construction a couple of summers, you know, and I studied architecture. I think I'd do a great job for you. He says, you're overqualified. I mean, I'd really, if I'd have known that was the answer he wanted, I'd have said, I don't know anything. <laughs> but but uh, he, said, he said, I only hire people who don't know anything so that I can train them. Because if, if they try and help me, it's going to be a disaster every time. That's all Jesus is saying here. You guys don't know anything. You think you know because, you know, you're baptizing the methodologies of the world. Our, we have a world of, you know, marketing and promotion and metrics and goals and objectives and vision statements and mission. All of it's null and void without the power of the Holy Spirit. All of it. <laughs> Not unimportant, but without the Spirit, meaningless and damaging, actually. In 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says, hey, look, I'm coming to you, Corinthians, and when I come, I'm going to discover not, not your words, but your what? Your power, because the gospel does not consist in your words, but in power. And, and, and uh, Paul understood that the Corinthians were at risk of confusing an intellectual, mental ascent of the gospel and the capacity to articulate said gospel. They're in danger of confusing that with, with actually displaying the power of God. And, and our capacity to, you know, memorize the Apostles' Creed, defend stuff, gather here, take notes, that doesn't mean anything unless flowing through us is the actual power of God. In fact, our obsession with the text can and does often lead to what Paul calls wrangling over words, where, you know, we're debating little doctrinal minutiae, whereas Jesus says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not about, you know, what do you eat? What do you drink? What does this Greek word mean? Ultimately, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if, you, if you're not displaying righteousness and peace, you're not displaying the power of God. And so, look, don't confuse taking notes with receiving the Holy Spirit. We must have the Holy Spirit. And then, he says, look, when you get the Holy Spirit, verse 8 you will be my witnesses. 
That's the promise of a purpose. We have a purpose given to us by God. The purpose is to be a witness. Very interesting word, uh, witness here. Because witness here, uh, and if, if you've hung around here a while, you know this, but I'm going to say it because it needs to be said over and over again. Witness here is not a verb. Witness here is a noun, right? Like, that's hugely significant. Why? Because uh, as evangelicals, it's overwhelmingly tempting to think of witness as a verb, which is a verb is an action, right? Something that you do. A noun is not an action. A noun is something you are. Does that make sense? So Jesus says, look, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, from that moment, your, your very life will testify of the character of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You will, Christ in you will be seen. You'll be a witness. <laughs> Interesting. If witness is a verb, here's the beauty of, like, I love verbs because if it's a verb, I get to start and stop. Does that make sense? Hey, let's go, let's go downtown. You know, we'll wander around on First Avenue and witness. So, you know, we, we amass a team and we get on a bus and we go down there and we've, you know, we're armed with tracts and Bibles and we unscrew people's heads and pour, you know, pour Bible in in different ways, screw them back on, come home, you know, sit around a pub, have a few beers. Yeah, you know, we went witnessing. But now, you know, it's pub time. My time, Miller time, <laughs> done, witnessing, done. Then we, or, or you, you know, you're married, you go back, <laughs> no need now, you know, witnessing. And then life behind closed doors. Does that happen? All the time. Not that programmatically, but we put on our Sunday best to uh, witness at least to one another, that there's some reality in this, and then often behind closed doors, there's nothing to it. <laughs> Look, when witness is a noun, now I'm convicted because I realize that 24-7, my calling is to be the presence of Christ wherever I am. I'm, I'm, not, I'm never off duty. And so, you know, in my world sometimes, I think of my role, you know, for Jesus as being this... Um, uh, how do I say it? My, like I have a teaching ministry, so I fly over to Europe and I teach, you know, 15 sessions here, 15 there, you know, coffee shop with the students, we hang, you know, we hang out, and then I get on the plane and I'm done. And I go, no, nope, this, this is my time. I've got my book, and I kick my feet up, and then the guy sitting next to me, um, you know, he, he, we start talking because the stewardess is making rude jokes, and, you know, we end up talking with each other, and then I, I discover... You know, he's, he, he asked me a question about what I, you know, what I do, and, and then I go, oh, here we go, you know, because something's going to happen. He's either going to be mad at me because I'm a pastor or, but I, anyway, I said, well, I'm a pastor. He says, oh, what, what kind? And he's from Atlanta. I said, you know, we're similar to this guy in Atlanta, Andy Stanley's his name, and oh, I love that guy, you know, boom, boom, boom. And then this guy starts to cry, and I go, oh, man, <laughs> what do I, you know, here I am, you know. In my me time, and he goes, you know, I'm over here because my dad just died. And, and so, his dad's Austrian. My dad just died, and then, uh, and then three days later, my mom had a stroke. So I had to move everything out of the house, move her into a home, figure out what to do with this property in Austria. My kids don't want to sell it. I want to sell it. And he's, 
He's witness. And here's the deal. Everything you are, your words, your actions, your money, your time, your sexuality, your home, your hospitality or lack thereof is telling people what Jesus is. Everything. People are deciding who Jesus is because you don't need a t-shirt. People know. They know that you claim to follow Christ. And so witness is a noun. Uh, uh, and, and when we made witness a verb, we turned people into commodities. And we're like, uh, I got I a witness, meaning I need to save you. I don't need to save anybody. Now, neither do you. But I do need to be a witness. And what that means is to be in the presence of everyone and love everyone. Because Jesus said, hey, the entire gospel is reduced to these two commands. You know, love, love God and what? Love your, love your neighbor. Do those things. So, for example, Jesus, and I'm quoting now, Jesus was primarily about the business of enjoying people. How radical is that? Not with an agenda, simply enjoying people. And why not? They, as imperfect as they were, were made in God's image. This simple act for Jesus of enjoying people was scandalous. That's why, remember, the disciples and the, you know, the Pharisees, they said, hey, why is Jesus eating with these people over here who are tax collectors and sinners? Like, he's not supposed to do that. And, and, and their complaint was rooted in uh, the notion in the ancient Near East that social meals were this symbolic ritual because when you had a meal with someone, it was literally an act of making a treaty with that person. Kings would call having a meal with someone a salt treaty. It's, it's, it's not exactly true today, but it's still relatively true. When our president, you know, has somebody over, from, people are so scandalized about Cuba. How can he do that? This is the deal. Right? Like when you eat with someone, it's an act of peace, do you see? And so kings called a salt treaty since, since the access to the mineral was scarce and religious lawyers stipulated that good Jews could not eat with Gentiles or sinners because the act of dining was an act of endorsing their lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, don't, oh you know, not, not them. Because of, and then you fill in the blank with anything, their politics, their, their, their sexual orientation, their this, their that. Look, we're not talking about, are we aligned? We're talking about what's our calling, and our calling is to be the presence of Christ across social barriers. Religious lawyers demanded that a person convert to Judaism and renounce their sin before they would dine with them. In other words, uh, behave before you can believe, before you can belong. And Jesus takes the entirely different paradigm, which is let's enjoy one another, belong before you believe so that you behave. Entirely different. Which are you? Which am I? If I believe that I'm filled with the power of Christ, then I expect Christ to bless others, others through me, and I expect fruit, and I'm free, therefore, to be the presence of Jesus. But this demands more of me than words. This demands my transformation, my ongoing transformation, and that transformation will embody itself in Jesus pushing me out of my comfort zone and sending me places that I would never have gone on my own. And, and, and so then, in the end, there's this promise of a plan 
what Jesus says, look, you'll be my witnesses, but it's not like you're going to hang out in Jerusalem and the world is going to flock to Jerusalem. That was the old model. I mean, in 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba went to King Solomon. She traveled to his geography. His space was so beautiful, his wisdom so transcended that she came to the conclusion, blessed be Jehovah. In other words, your God, I, I, this is what I believe she's saying, your God is the, is the true God of all the multiplicity of gods in this polytheistic universe. I have come to the conclusion that I want to follow your God. And it was because she came. It's, we call it in church things the attractional model, right? Make the coolest church ever and people just come. And Jesus says, look, sometimes maybe, I mean, still it happens in the, in the, in the New Testament, but the prevailing model and the, and, the, and the marching orders are in chapter 1, verse 8, which is this, you go out and you cross social divides. Why? Because people, people of other social entities won't come in because what's cool to you is not cool to them. Does that make sense? So you need to be where people are. What would happen if we took this seriously? What, I mean, what would happen? You know, I mean, all of us now, we watch these things in the news. You know, Paris, Belgium. We see the border in, in um, you know, Turkey uh, or now uh, Austria. Open, closed, huge debates. Our own debates about immigration here as well. And, and this fear of terror and crime. Do you know what? Uh, it's very hard to build a profile of a terrorist. It's very hard to build a profile. Like what, like what do these people share in common? Other than this, social isolation. Every, sing, every single time, social isolation. I wonder what would happen if every, if every believer was in relationship across a social divide. I just wonder what would happen to our city. What if just the people in the room, all of us... We're in a significant relationship. Someone, we were investing time in someone different than us. Prison ministry. It's Carrie McCarter here at Bethany. New Horizons, downtown, street youth. Union gospel mission, homelessness, addiction. Aurora Commons, right here. People living in motels, dealing with domestic violence, addiction, mental illness. Uh, North Seattle, Bethany, <laughs> with a junction right next to a meth recovery clinic. Just relationship, my friend Pam up there, with somebody, uh, real change. Just a relationship with somebody, right? <laughs> the same person. Mentoring project that Don Miller has going. Greg Ingalls, this ministry, YouthWise here at Seattle, or, uh, through Bethany, is a significant ministry of mentoring high school students across social divides. Like, what would, what would happen if everyone, by virtue of being filled with the Holy Spirit, is going out, and by virtue of going out, building bridges? What would happen? I'm convinced it would be a revolution. That's why I love the name of the book of Acts. This isn't the words of the apostles. This is not the Bible studies of the apostles. This is not the Sunday morning worship experiences of the apostles. This is the what? The acts of the apostles. And so I've had to ask two questions in my own life. 
And I challenge you with these before we come to this table. Number one, am I filled with the Holy Spirit? We're told in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled. I, look, I, I can't be filled if my hands are already full. So if I've got an agenda in my life, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as I can maintain my geographical autonomy or my wealth or my, or my sexual ethic that's very personal and private, my addictive behavior that nobody knows about. Look, I can't be filled if my hands are full. Filling, filling comes to the far side of emptying. God, this is everything. I want everything that is my life to represent you. Fill me with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. And then I just say thank you and get on with my day. Am I filled? And here's the second thing. What am I in this culture and in, in my relationship with you and our relationship with one another and particularly our relationships beyond these walls? Are we building walls or bridges? By our words, by our actions, we don't save people. But we are, we are called to be nothing less than the presence of Christ. And when we are that and we're filled, Jesus says this, that we won't be this black hole just drawing people in. Oh no, we'll be going out. We'll be going out. And whether people ever attend here or not isn't the point at all. And even to some extent, whether, whether, whether a particular person gets you know, saved or not, our calling is to be the presence of Jesus. Jesus saves, we don't. But he uses us when we go. Be filled and go. That's what we'll see in the book of Acts. Very exciting. And we'll culminate this on a Saturday, first Saturday in June, what we call Serve Day, where we will go, literally, we'll go into our city and be a blessing all over the city with all kinds of groups that are seeking to embody hope. I hope you'll join us. Put that on your calendar soon. Father, thank you as we come to this table that we aren't called to build a kingdom or save the world. We're called to be filled and out of the obedience of that fullness, rest in the confidence that you will use us as instruments of hope to bring the light of Christ into dark places. And I simply, I do, I pray for us as a church that this would not be a series, but this would be a catalyst toward newness, that you'd change our hearts. We pray in Christ's name.